Welcome to My American Melting Pot, the podcast for people living multicultural lives. I'm your host, Lori L. Tharps. I'm a Black woman married to a Spanish man raising three bilingual, biracial, bicultural children. I'm also a journalist and the author of the book, Same Family, Different Colors, Confronting Colorism in America's Diverse Families. Some people call me a cultural critic or a pop culture pundit. I call myself a diversity diva. I'm really glad you're here for another fascinating conversation that meets at the intersection of race and real life. On episode 34 of the My American Melting Pod podcast, we're going to be talking about travel, family, and finding self. Yes, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, and travel is probably the last thing on anyone's mind right now. But this conversation isn't about planning the perfect cruise or finding cheap flights. I've invited Lisette Austin to the melting pot to share how travel helped her find herself as a mixed-race Black woman who also happens to be adopted. And then we're going to talk about this new trend in the travel world called DNA travel and how it connects with identity, family, and finding self. Lisette Austin is an award travel expert and is the host of the Globetrotter Lounge podcast, where she interviews women who have found creative ways to travel more. Note, I love her podcast. Lisette is also the creator of the online course, Jet Set 101, Becoming a Travel Hacker. When Lisette is not talking travel, she is a web designer who also spent years working in university research. She lives in the Seattle area with her husband and teenage son. Welcome to My American Melting Pot, Lisette. Thanks. It's great to be here. I have to tell the Melting Pot community, Lisette, that even though you and I have never actually met in real life, I already feel like you're my best friend in my head. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we've totally clicked. (laughs) Right? So I love your podcast. I love your energy. And I'm actually super excited for this opportunity because now I get to even learn more about you here with the rest of the community. So welcome again. Yeah, thanks. I can't wait. It'll be fun. So, okay, why don't we start, Lisette, by having you tell us a little bit more about your family and how you grew up and how you identify racially. Let's see. I grew up, I mean, you know, from the Seattle area where I still live and was adopted at three days old. I am multiracial. I am half black, half white. I mean, really, my biological father is black. My biological mother is white. I was adopted by an interracial couple, basically the same makeup. So my adoptive father's black. My adoptive mother's white. My adoptive mother is French Canadian. So I actually grew up speaking French and had kind of a different spin on my cultural experience at home because of that. I didn't really feel like I was, you know, I had like French speaking aunts and uncles. My mom has still has a strong accent. And then my father was from Virginia, my adoptive father, and he, all his family was pretty far away. And actually he was an only child. So I didn't know a lot of my aunts and uncles on that side. So I'm saying all this because my identity was one as like a mixed race person who didn't have a ton of black family, but at least had my dad to identify with as being a black woman. Because sometimes I do, as many people who are, I, I feel like many mixed race people, it's like my identity is a bit fluid. So sometimes I'm like, I'm a black woman, that's it. And sometimes I'm like, I'm a mixed girl. And sometimes I don't even know I'm like some other thing, like a Brazilian person or something. I make up, (laughs) I make up other things. So anyway, oh, well, and then the French aspect, you know, so there's a lot of things in there, but 
I would say mostly identifies multiracial. Long answer to your question. No, perfect. We love long answers. And for season four of the podcast, which we're in right now, the whole theme for this season is family. And as this is a podcast for people living multicultural lives, you know, you're long answer, so to speak, is is exactly the type of, you know, stories and family uh, makeups that, you know, people in this audience really relate to. So, so it's awesome. It's really interesting. So it kind of makes sense. It's, it seems like it would make sense that, you know, with a French Canadian mother who essentially was living, I would say, an immigrant experience to a certain extent, living mm-hmm. in the United States. Yep. And, and again, that your father was from Virginia, also not living in his home state, that I would assume that travel was part of your upbringing in some ways, even if it wasn't active travel, just the idea of moving from place to place, from country to state, that kind of thing. Tell me a little bit about what travel was like when you were a child. Before I launch completely into that, when you mentioned again that my dad was from Virginia, I just want to also say a little tidbit When my father married my mom, it was in the early 60s, and he would not have been allowed by law to marry a white woman in his home state at the time that they got married. Just a little side note. So anyway... Wait, did he did he move to Seattle to marry her? Like, did they escape from Seattle? <laughs> they met in Seattle. Um, he had come out here to be a resident. He's a child psychiatrist, retired now. He was one of the first African-American faculty at the University of Washington, et cetera, et cetera. He met my mom, who was a psychiatric nurse who could barely speak English, and she had moved here. And so, yeah, she didn't even know. When folks looked at her crazy when he asked her out on a date, a lot of her coworkers were like, you can't date him. And she's like, why not? Being from Canada, she didn't really have the whole same view of, you know, not supposed to date black people kind of thing. So anyway, so they wouldn't have been able to get married in Virginia, but they were living here. So they got married. So that was just a little sidetrack note before we launch into the travel thing. Well, that's great because a couple episodes back, we just did a show all about interracial relationships. So it's all flowing. Keep it coming. <laughs> okay. So, so yes. Travel, big part of my childhood. I was an only child. There's a little theme going there. My dad was an only child. I was an only child. My son is an only child. Um, And so for some people, they think that's either a problem when you're an only child or, you know, you get spoiled or there's a benefit. Well, there's definitely pros and cons. But one of the pros is that my parents could take me everywhere when they traveled because there was just one of me. So my dad being a doctor, I mean, I lived a pretty privileged life. We weren't rich, but we were definitely very well situated, right? Uh, Middle class and or maybe even upper middle class, I would say. But I don't even know. I just know that he was able to travel for work quite a bit. And that was a huge gift for me. So he would take us along to conferences. And I remember going a lot around the United States, uh, Alaska, Arizona. Then my mom loved the idea of going to Europe. And so when he could, he would do work trips to Europe. But we also went on our own. And my mom made a big effort for me to spend time in French-speaking countries. So for example, she brought a babysitter along. I only recently learned something about that whole experience, that trip. She brought a babysitter and we went to one of her friend's small hometowns in France. Um, I think it's called Saint-Savignon. And she had us stay there, me and this kind of au pair 
for like the whole summer. I thought we were just there and my mom was there too, but actually my parents went traveling around Europe more and we stayed in the village. I was like, hold on. I just reconnected with my babysitter after not seeing her since then. Um, and we were amazed at, I mean, I was amazed. I'm like, wait, you stayed with me and you were 14 and we lived in this town with my mom's friends' parents. Like, so yeah, I had some early like epic travel adventures that I kind of vaguely remember about like swimming pools in France and stuff like that. But anyway, so I did things like that. And um, again, my dad on a doctor's income could afford to take us and we could stay in pretty decent hotels. And we went to Mexico a fair amount. We went to Europe a few times, definitely to Canada and Montreal. A couple times I stayed, I think another whole summer. My mom was very dedicated to me speaking French. So when she could, she would immerse me, you know, in these experiences. So so yeah, I did travel quite a bit. And as I got older, that desire to travel, I just thought it was normal. Like you just travel, that's what you do. Again, very privileged in that way. And then as I got older, I was like, oh, wait, how do you fund that though? That's a problem, you know, when I was no longer a dependent on <laughs> benefiting from my dad's income, it was like, oh, shoot, kind of spendy, but I managed to keep going. <laughs> so I'm still right, traveling. Right, right. It's like, <laughs> hey, Dad, you want to travel with me? Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm thinking about this trip, Dad. You want to come too? Right. So yeah, so tell me a little bit then how you continue to travel as an adult. Like, what did you decide to be professionally? Like, did that get influenced by your love of travel? Did you travel in college? Like, did you do any study abroad or anything like that? Kind of just take us through like how you are doing what you're doing today and how travel has fitted through that. Yeah, um, I did do a study abroad when I was 19. I studied in Italy for about, I want to say six months, and then I spent another three months traveling around on my own. So that was huge. Uh, not funny, funny, not funny is that I studied in the same town as Amanda Knox, the infamous Amanda Knox. And I'm from the same town. I mean, we're from Seattle, and I went, we, I studied at the same university as her. Not at the same time, I'm older than her, but same age. So when that wow. all happened with her, I was like, Ooh, could have been me, you know, like that was me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I was in Perugia and Italy for, for quite a while. And then that definitely cemented my, my love of travel. I mean, I just loved that experience. Not that there weren't some crazy things that happened while I was there. Very crazy for me. You know, I felt like I was a little bit, well, just the whole traveling while black thing, you know, Guy, guys trying to touch my hair, whatever. There was a lot of craziness that happened. But nonetheless, I was like, I love this experience. So after that, I just ended up really trying to travel when I could. I couldn't afford to do a lot of great travel, though, for quite a while. You know, that was that was unique. I got funding through, you know, school. Later, when I was in grad school, I ended up just mostly going to Mexico. I was studying at University of Arizona, so it was easy to drive down and go to Mexico, more affordable. By then, I'd met my husband. Uh, we weren't married yet, but, you know, we would... I remember saving up and maybe there were even, like, cut-out coupons off these boxes. <laughs> like, I remember doing weird things to try to get cheaper deals, like stays yeah. in hotels in Puerto Vallarta. Yeah. I, I remember cutting things out. I don't remember the details anymore, but, you know, it was like the 90s. I remember living <laughs> in New York and trying to get back and forth to Spain because I had this long-distance relationship with my now husband. And going to like dark rooms where you would find these ads in the back of like the Village Voice newspaper right. and you'd go to this seedy building and someone would like give you some sort of 
paper ticket that was good. You know, it was, it yes. was just very, very kind yes. of hush hush. And you're like, I hope this works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like these weird, yeah, discounted offers, but you had to sit through things. Yeah, no, I, for yeah. real, I did those things. Somewhere around there, there started being um, like credit cards. I mean, I don't remember exactly when this was all, you know, when this happened, except for wait, I do remember being like maybe the early 2000s and having my Alaska Airlines credit card and figuring out that, oh, my husband at the time was a carpenter. He had a lot of overhead, you know, all the clients, he'd put all the construction materials and supplies on the credit card. The work would pay the bill. Then we'd have this maybe 50,000 miles a year from it, which was like, ooh, or maybe not even that much, maybe like 30,000. I don't know. So at least we could go again to usually Mexico. We did go on our honeymoon in 98 to Europe, and that was epic. I did not want a big fancy ring. I was like, don't you dare get me a big engagement ring or anything like that. Like, we have to go on a long honeymoon. (laughs) So we we did like a month honeymoon. That's to me more valuable than diamonds. That was amazing. Um, We did have an opportunity in 2005 to go to India for a friend's wedding. So that was amazing. 2006, my son was five. We brought him. That was kind of scary at times. There were a lot of weird things that happened. But anyway, that was amazing. So it wasn't that I didn't have really big adventures, but they were few and far between until 2012 when I figured out how to travel hack and rack up miles and points. And then my travel really took off. Not that I, you know, hadn't been a traveler before, but I started traveling a lot more in the last eight years, I would say. So Define what a lot looks like, Lisette. What do you mean by that? Well, again, I mean, I already traveled a lot in the sense of maybe a few times, well, three to four times a year, maybe going to Hawaii now and then. Now it can get really crazy. So, for example, last year in 2019, I do a lot of quick jaunts domestically. Maybe I'll attend conferences. I think I went to New York three times last year, you know, one for a wedding, one for a conference. I don't remember the other one why, you know, I went to LA. I I just bop around. So there's a lot of short domestic trips that I might take, maybe like eight to 10 in a year. I don't even know. And then I think I went to, trying to think the bigger trips I took in the spring of last year, but I know by fall, I went to Bali in September, Latvia in November, Brazil in November as well, the Caribbean in January. So like in between September and January, I'd hit like four countries or something like that. So just to be completely transparent, if you look at Lisette's uh, website, Jet Set Lisette, is that the website? Yeah, or is it Je- your- it's Jet Set Lisette. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, we'll have links to all of this on the website, but her website and her Instagram feed is just beautiful. All the places that she goes. I just, I don't even have to travel. I just look at where Lisette goes <laughs> and, and, and pretend I'm in all these beautiful places. And the thing is, it's so hard to keep up because you're like, oh, Lisette's in Bali. No, she's not. She's in Latvia. No, she's not. She's in Brazil. Like, can't even yeah. quite keep up. So yeah. yeah. And you're able to do all this traveling because of the travel hacking, which is really cool. And I really highly recommend that anybody who is interested in doing as much travel as Lisette to listen to her podcast, first of all, and then, you know, think about maybe taking her course because the thing that I learned from listening to her podcast while I started listening is that there are so many ways to travel that don't require a millionaire's paycheck, right? So that's just so amazing to me. And it really made me realize that, you know, when you tell yourself, oh, I'd love to do that, but I just couldn't afford it. There are so many different ways. And it's not only travel hacking with points and miles, but 
again, I've learned of so many different options that, you know, just listening to your podcast that people have done, like uh, house sitting, or when you go and like work in somebody's like sunflower fields or something in exchange for like room and board somewhere that there's just so many different ways that you can see the world without necessarily, you know, again, having a lot, a lot of money. So that's so exciting to me. So moving on or thinking about travel in that way, I I wanted to spend time kind of talking about travel and family since family is the theme for this, this season of the podcast. And I first wanted to ask you if, you know, I know you have, um, you love going to Brazil and I'm sure there's other places that you like going to as well, but Tell me a little bit about, because you even said it in the beginning, you said that sometimes you would say like, sometimes I just feel Brazilian because I'm a multiracial mix. What did Brazil mean for you in terms of a person of multicultural or multiracial heritage? What was it like for you to be in Brazil for the first time? And, and what was it that you connected with while you were there? I first went to Brazil in 2007. And I went because I'm also a dancer. I've danced my whole life since I basically could walk or even before that, apparently my parents told me as soon as I could pull up. Um, so <laughs> earth, wind and fire was on and I pulled up and I just started dancing and I haven't stopped. So I went through a phase in my early thirties where I, I, well, I had a young son. I think I had him when I was 31 and I came across Brazilian Samba. And I remember thinking, okay, whatever those people are doing, it was like at a festival. I need to do that. Cause I'm drowning in like diapers and that, you know, my son was too, and I saw these women in like feathers dancing and I'm like, that that looks really appealing to me right now. <laughs> so I learned how to do samba and it turned out that I really took to it, like just strangely. I'd always done a lot of different forms of dance. I'd done a lot of pretty much everything except for ballet. Ballet was never my forte at all, but I did a lot of, you know, hip hop and African and jazz and tap and like all kinds of things. But samba really was like, whoa. I was made for this, you know. So I went down to Brazil. I became quite a Brazil nut, as we like to call each other in that community. <laughs> and I had to go to Brazil. It was like the pilgrimage, you know, got to go to Brazil. So I went to Brazil. I went to Rio. It was my goal to go to Rio because that's the style of samba that I do, Rio-style samba. So I wasn't planning to go really anywhere else, but I was traveling with a friend. A friend of mine had said he really wanted to go. And I was like, fine, he's almost like my brother. And so I'm like, this will be fun. And he's African-American. So he was really interested. He said, I really want us to go to Salvador, Brazil. And I'm like, oh, okay. And he's also a dancer, actually. But he was like, no, I want to go there because that's the seat of Afro-Brazilian culture. It's supposed to be the largest Afro-rooted culture outside of Africa. And I was like, oh, all right. Well, that does sound interesting. So he's like, so let's do it. I'm like, sure, we'll tack it on. And again, I'm thinking, you know, that'll be fun. That'll be culturally interesting. But I'm all about Rio. I'm, I was like obsessed with Rio style stuff at the time. So when we went in 2007, the whole experience like flipped. It turned out that I connected much more with Salvador than I did with Rio. Rio's great. It's beautiful. You know, it was really cool to see the big samba schools and it was amazing. But when I found myself in Salvador, which is about 87, 88% black, I'm walking around and remember my friend's black, right? So first of all, we disappear, you know, like nobody really looks at us as tourists. We didn't speak Portuguese at all, pretty much barely at the time. And the little bit that we knew, 
if we wanted to not be bothered by people asking us, like, you know, some areas of Salvador were sketchy, and so people would ask you for money, and we could just start talking to, like, three things we knew, which was something like, do you want to pay? No, I don't want to pay. Do you want to pay? No. But if you want... I'll pay. Like, we would just say that to each other in Portuguese back and forth, and people would just, like, it was like we weren't there. Um, so that was my first, like, wow. Like, I was used to traveling and sometimes being stared at or, you know, sticking out, and I loved how I could vanish there. And people yes. would always come up to me, especially me, and, and just talk to me in Portuguese and then be shocked when I would speak English or say, like, I'm sorry, I don't speak, you know, my broken Portuguese would come out and they would just look at me like, what? <laughs> and um, the fact that I could samba then also made them like, oh, you are Brazilian. Like, you belong here. Like, what do you mean? Like, what? how are you not Brazilian? You look Brazilian, Baiana, especially like from Bahia, the area. And the people were so warm and friendly and they didn't care if you could barely speak Portuguese. And I've always loved to dance, right? And I've always loved music. And, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, people think it's a party if you're just standing around and talking. And I'm like, what's wrong with you people? Like, put on some music, you know? So, <laughs> like, so I go to Brazil and all these people are like, oh, man, if they get together like two or three of them, it's going to be somebody's going to grab a Coke can and start making a beat with it on the like, you know, an empty can and start making a beat on the table. Someone else is going to start singing. Of course, someone brought a cavaquinho, which is like their little guitar thing. And they, they're singing and then other people nearby might start dancing. I'm like, okay, this is totally like, I need to be here like as much as possible. Like <laughs> this and the tropics and the colonial buildings and the Portuguese. So I ended up becoming obsessed with Salvador and would go and ultimately actually... I came home and told my husband about it. He's more frugal guy, had never been to Brazil, but he was like, wait, how much do you say properties down there? Because I noticed something was really cheap, not thinking we would buy property, but just noticing like, I can't believe you can get a place by the beach for this much or whatever. And he's like, let's go down and check it out. I'm like, what? And so, and my husband is white, by the way, and I'm just going to mention that like I'm in an interracial relationship. So I'm like, Okay, so then we go down together. He totally stands out. So I was like, you know, hmm, like want to leave him? Like, let me walk yeah, ahead no. of you, you know? Yeah. Stay back <laughs> there. Blowing up my whole like, blending <laughs> thing. And so we go, we go down there and we end up buying a place with some other people. My dad pitched in, another Brazil nut friend of mine pitched in who was a musician. And it was very, very affordable. It was a three bedroom, like a couple blocks from the beach and in the heart of the city. Or the, not really the heart, but like in this really great neighborhood, Baja. So that happened. And so I've been like, I don't know. I don't, I've never gone and like lived there, but I've been down there maybe like, I don't know, 12, 14, I don't know how many times now since then. Not as much as you might think, because it's still 24 hours door to door from my house store to the other house door. So it's not something I just zip off and do all the time, but we rent it in between. But you, you just know. said 12 or 14 times that you've been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been there a lot. That's a lot. Like, that's, it is. It is a lot. That is, <laughs> it is a lot. But that's, you know, what you said, though, like, I completely understand what you, you, when you said that you could just disappear in the crowd and that feeling that, like, even though you were born and raised in Seattle, like, thinking that people didn't really know how to party, how to socialize, and yet you find this place on the other side of the world where you physically fit in, you kind of spiritually fit in, where people yep. look at you and say, of course you belong here. That is such an amazing feeling, isn't it? It totally is, yeah. And the thing about it for me too was there was always some drama here, as you can imagine, like 
growing up in Seattle, the idea here is like, oh, we're so progressive and there's, you know, there's really any racism and stuff like that. Well, of course there is, you know, and, but the thing that's always been hard for me is sort of walking between two worlds. Like, I don't know, I used to feel awkward about even being married to my husband and like what other black people think of me and stuff like that. And, you know, I met him early on and actually almost dumped him because he was white. And that was a very upsetting period in our relationship. Um, cause I was like, no, I need to date, you know, a black guy, but I'd already met him and fell in love with him, and then whatever. So here I was in this country where nobody was looking at me weird about that. Like that was the other thing. Like when I brought him with me, people didn't worry about it. I don't know. It's like, because I love stepping outside of the dynamics that go on in our country and all the intensity of it from all directions, just the history of slavery and not that there isn't a huge history. There's a huge history of slavery in Brazil. That's the whole reason why they're all there in El Salvador. But, <laughs> right. but because I'm not from there, I don't have to navigate the bull crap, really. It's all just like, it's a weird mix of, they like say, oh, you're ours. But then you're not though. So you're an American. But yet, I don't know what I'm even trying to say, except for that there's something about being outside of my country and being there that I felt more myself or that I could be fully myself and still fully accepted without people judging like how I'm talking or how I'm acting or who I've chosen to date or any of that stuff. They're just like, you know, yes. it goes yes. deep. <laughs> no, Lisette, I, I am over here co-signing, hands up in the air, preach girl, honestly, mm-hmm. because... I felt the same way in a lot of ways in Spain. Now people are like, what the hell are you talking about? There's no black people in Spain. But this idea of being outside of York, being outside of the United States, which is just drenched in the blood of racism, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just the foundation of this country. So even if you're in another country that might have its own racial problems, which again, inequality, racism, whatever, there's going to be some kind of isms, but it's not America, right? I mean, in the United States is unique in its formation of its racist society. So what you said about being able to be your full self outside of the United States is so true. And I literally just wrote a post on the blog today about a writer named Miles Marshall Lewis, who spent significant time in France and said it was the first time that he could lead with not, I'm a black man, right? Right. Um, He even said it was like being an African-American man and fully being aware of the racism against Africans in France, like understanding that there is a difference. But he said being an African-American in France, it's like the first time I've ever felt something akin to white privilege. Exactly. It's like, well, and being in Brazil, I mean, I definitely have American privilege. Like, I mean, the Brazilian experience, especially for the black people in Brazil, is not great. It's not good. I mean, there's a lot of poverty. There's that's really intense. There are... It's not good. You know, people go, oh, Brazil, utopia, everybody's blended together. And it's like, yeah, kind of, yes. But there's a lot of racism there too. So there's this whole mixed thing of like, they look at me and they see me as like, there's, you know, hey, you're like my sister, even though you're from America, but you look like me. So you belong here and you can samba and we love you and we love your energy. And at the same time, I'm recognizing that, wow, I'm, I need to have some gratitude for what I do have, even if it's mm. rough in my hometown or right, my home right. country. You know, it's like, can we, um, because also the Brazilians are really amazing about, even though things are crappy, they really have this, I'm totally generalizing. Okay. Hello. I just, I'm talking about an entire like country. That's not even, I can't stereotype that way, but I'll just say, especially in Bahia, a lot of people have this attitude of things can be really rough, but everything's still beautiful. They literally say, tudo beleza, which 
is the name of my little dance company, Brazilian dance company, but it also just means everything's beautiful. And so like, if you're like, Hey, you know, what's going on? How are you doing? They're like, Hey, I can't complain. Everything's beautiful. You know? And there's this sense of like, even if things are hard, gratitude, enjoy, dance, sing, you know? And so that's refreshing. Yeah. And that's not saying that everybody's like, oh, that's not that, you know, I think people assume you're saying something like, oh, but the slaves were happy. They sang. It's not that. It's more of a perspective. Like, how do you approach the hardships of life? I mean, you can approach it like it sucks and I like there's no point in living or you can approach like it sucks, but I've got to find something to be grateful for or I will just give up. So I think that I mean, I totally understand what you're saying. And I think, again, this is why I wanted to talk about travel in this context of finding self, not in the context of, you know, let's take a nice trip, but travel does give us that opportunity to see ourselves in different environments. And it's not the same. I mean, I think if we did move to these other countries, then you would get kind of embroiled in their politics and, you know, might find it even just as difficult or worse than the United States. But travel where you get to visit, even if it's a long-term visit, but you do get this opportunity to see what would I be like if I didn't have this burden of race on top of me? Or what would I look like? Or what would it be like if I was the odd man out and people stared at me? And, you know, how would I respond in those kind of contexts? Like travel puts you in all these different situations that, you know, you get to see who, what you're really made of. But I want to shift the conversation now to this concept of DNA travel. So I want you to put your travel expert hat on for just a minute. <laughs> so, this idea of DNA travel is actually officially a thing. We know that uh, I think it was in 2019 or 2018, it was officially listed as like the big new trend in the travel world, where essentially people are traveling to destinations where they have some sort of family history. And because the DNA kits like the Ancestry.com or the 23andMe, you know, you can spit in a tube and then find out where your ancestors come from. You can then plan your trip based on whatever your DNA kit says. But even further than that, there are some travel companies that have put together trips where you can actually travel with a genealogist who will, you know, help plan the trip. Well, the travel agent will kind of help plan the trip. And then the genealogist will, you know, maybe do some genealogy with you, your family or whatever the group you're on. So not only do you get to see like, this is the Irish countryside where your ancestors are from, but specifically, this is where your great, great grandmother was buried or things like that. So I'm just wondering from you who, you know, has been watching kind of like travel trends and things. Do you think of DNA travel as something that is something that people, is it something that anybody can do? Like, you know, go find your DNA and go, go to that place. Or do you think of it as something like you have to find an expert to help you and to find your roots and to go through a, an agent or something like that? What do you think of this quote unquote trend of DNA travel? Yeah, I had heard about the trend as well. I think I heard about it last year when I was at a conference, a women in travel summit, and uh, someone mentioned that it was, you know, named a top travel trend for 2019. And I was like, oh, that's what I was going to do anyway, just because I travel a lot. And I had taken an ancestry test about three years ago, a little over three years ago, and had seen what my ethnicity estimates were and from where supposedly I have come from. And it, it did match a lot of what I knew. And I was like, of course, I'm going to go to those places. You know, that's just how I am. Like, I, oh, great. This is my new my new goal. So when I saw that trend, I thought, well, that's fascinating. I mean, I think it makes sense. More and more people are, are doing DNA testing. 
although people have known where they've come from, you know, before <laughs> DNA testing, like their parents have said, you know, we're Irish or whatever. And so it's not right. like, I'm sure people have been doing this. They just didn't call it that because we weren't doing right. DNA tests. Um, right. her- heritage travel, maybe. I don't know. But yes. it really is a new thing now. And for me personally, as someone who just wants to have, I have my like wander lists, you know, always that I'm looking at where I want to go. It's just a great new way to target where I want to travel because I do want to find out more about myself. And especially as an adoptee who grew up not seeing people who look exactly like me, just this idea of like going to where my ancestors hailed from. And I always love stories from the past. I'm not necessarily like a history buff. Well, I mean, kind of maybe a little, but I just love the idea of like, I wish I could have sat, you know, with people. I've worked through my university research work that I did for years. I was working primarily with native tribes in the area and I would always be jealous. I mean, I would go to these, you know, I was involved with many events and things and I won't go into that whole part of my life, but you go and I'd spend all night like at the canoe journey revivals here. People are talking about, you know, they stand up and say who their mother is and who their father is and who their grandparents are and what tribes they come from. And then they could tell you like going back, you know, and I couldn't do that. Right. So, you know, I can say like, well, I was adopted from Seattle, but I don't really know like my bloodlines going back. And so having an ethnicity test where you can at least say, hey, Maybe from the way back, I was from there, like Nigeria. So important for many African-Americans and as an adoptee also from that standpoint. And do I think you need a broker? Well, I'm a big traveler. I'm not afraid to go somewhere on my own. So for me, no. Um, I'm like, no, I don't need that. Although it could be interesting. Like, I suppose if there were some people that would say, hey, I'm here and I'm in this country and I can help you as someone who's looking into finding out more about the history or something like that. You know, I mean, I suppose that would be a great thing. And I I love saving money through miles and points because then I can splurge on things like a specialized genealogical tour once I get there. (laughs) You know, I mean, I wouldn't say no to that. But would I sign up for a whole like planned trip? No, I don't need to because I don't want to spend that kind of money um, and I don't have to spend that kind of money. But I might benefit from some tours once I get there. So that's kind of how I see it. But some people really feel more comfortable traveling in a more organized sense. And I could imagine that would be really great if you can afford that and save up for it. Fantastic. I'd love to hear how that goes. You know, you hit on two really key audiences that I think would really benefit from DNA traveling, if you will. And that is, as you mentioned, adoptees and African-Americans, because these are two groups of people who historically, you know, don't have access to their ancestry. But also I think you make such a good point that like black people know we're from Africa <laughs> so, right? Um, and like Italian Americans know they're from Italy and you know, it's kind of disingenuous to call this thing new, but they've just slapped a new label on it because it doesn't take much to figure out that it's these new DNA testing kits that are really kind of pushing the label, pushing the concept of DNA travel as a thing where you have to do the test first. And I like that you use the term heritage estimates. You didn't say this is like, I spit in the tube and it told me exactly where I'm from because we know that these are still estimates. They're not an exact science at all. So spitting in a tube is not going to be like, and therefore the village where your family is from is right here. It doesn't get you anywhere near that level of specificity. So in theory, a genealogist like Skip Gates, <laughs> if he were available to like run your whole genealogical background, that would be amazing. But I don't think that these planned tours are getting that specific because they're taking you on a tour with a group of people. So they're not necessarily doing each individual person. It's more like 
this is the Italian American tour and we're going to look at certain places. Right. Right. But I do feel like I have seen things like kind of this um, back to Africa tours for African Americans who, again, there's no exact science to exact country where people are from, but people are saying like, yeah, African Americans, we are organizing tours for people to get a sense, you know, going through Ghana, going through Senegal, other West African countries where we kind of have, we know from history where the majority of African American ancestry comes from, which I think is really cool too. And I love that idea of a trend because there are groups of people who have historically been kind of cut off from their ancestry. So what would you suggest for somebody if they were like, yeah, I'm interested in this idea of heritage or DNA travel? What would you just say the first thing that they should do if they wanted to just start even looking into the possibility? Well, I mean, I do love ancestry and I do love the fact that I got my DNA tested. I mean, it has given me uh, some direction and, and I would recommend doing that. What people aren't really aware of, just be prepared for the fact that even though the ethnicity estimates are maybe not exactly right, I mean, they're having said that, they do match what I know. So it isn't that it's not right. It's just that you can't, like, right now mine says um, 35% Irish and Scottish. Well, I do know that on my birth mother's side, there's Scottish. Like, it's not going to break it down exactly, like, what percentage of where, you know. But it does help, and it can give you a map and something to go from, and I think that's pretty cool. And um, also, But the one thing I was going to say that is accurate is the DNA matching to other people. And I think people don't really understand that that's what's going to happen too. So I think people are understanding that more now. And I've been getting a lot from that. So as an adoptee. Give us a little example, because people might not know. If you haven't actually delved into that, I know what you mean, because we did that too. And suddenly like, they're like 87 people sending me emails like, I right. think I'm your cousin. <laughs> yes. So so yeah, you anybody, you, I think you can opt out of this, but yes. you can basically, if you opt into being matched with other people, you will start seeing lists of who your DNA matches are. Now for adoptees, this is epic if you decide you want to find your birth family. And actually I have been on that trajectory, which was not my intention of uh, what, when I started. But it is true that you will see DNA does not lie. Like the ethnicity estimates is one thing. But if you see people that are your cousins, they are your cousins. If it says it guesses it's between second and third, they really are your second or third cousin. And so, you know, like with my son's in there, yep, he's going to show up as my child. And, you know, my aunt, yeah, it's going to show that they have enough shared DNA to be my aunt. Or at that point, it could be like, this is either your aunt or your nephew or your, you know, grandfather or whatever. That part of it's actually valuable, though, too, because you might realize like, oh, my gosh, this is showing a second cousin who is in Scotland or who is in Nigeria or whatever. I mean, you know, the more people are doing it around the world, maybe not, I don't know if African people are necessarily doing ancestry, but there are more Europeans doing it. So and 23andMe and there's other ones as well. There are many of them. I don't have a list of them in front of me, but there's some that more Europeans are on those DNA platforms. There's a new one for African-Americans that because there weren't as many African-American samples in these bigger ones that people often talk about. I know there's a new DNA testing company that is specifically looking for African-Americans. And I I guess maybe the African diaspora, I don't think it's just African-Americans, but you're making another really good point. I think when people hear DNA travel or heritage travel, it's like, oh, I'm going to go to Africa, I'm going to Ireland, I'm going to go to England. But it could also be, like you said, if you find out that your cousin is in Virginia or your cousin is in California, that DNA travel could just be across the United States or the next state over. 
Yeah, I'm planning that. Yeah. Yeah. And what's crazy is in my ethnicity estimate at the bottom, I'm looking at it right now, it says additional communities and it says East Texas, Arkansas, and Louisiana, African-Americans. And then you can click on that and read up what that means. And it has a whole historical thing of like the why the African-Americans ended up there, some of my featured matches that are from there, that same group, um, the community history, transitioning to freedom, like all this stuff. Okay. And so what's crazy is I have been finding my birth family and they are from Arkansas. Oh, wow. Uh So, so, and I am planning to go there now, you know? So, (laughs) so yeah, it's like, it's all real. Like that part of it is actually real. And my father, my adoptive father, when he did his DNA, it said he's from the Virginia community of African-Americans. And I'm like, yep, that's true. (laughs) So it's, there's some really amazing things that, you know, you can, like you said, be connected with cousins, you, and then end up going domestically traveling around. You might be connected with someone who does know someone in Europe, you know, from kind of a distant connection that you would be able to then meet up with. And also, you know, in Ancestry, you can build trees. I mean, really, Ancestry started, and I love Ancestry, and I've been on a lot of genealogical podcasts lately, which is a great resource. Like, if, you know, there's one I love called Cut Off Genes Podcast. And you start to learn about all the other ones, like MyHeritage.com and all the different DNA testing. You talked about the African-American one. Ancestry is still the biggest So, like, I have tons of Black family and ancestry. Tons. I mean, I found my Black birth family through ancestry alone. And so, you know, I really like it. And I think that that is a great tool. If you're going to start anywhere, start with ancestry. Because you can also build the trees. And the trees are huge. That's what they started as. They started as a tree-building online service, basically, before they did DNA testing. So they're very... It's very easy to build big trees based on records that are in the system. And I had already located my bio birth mom like 20 some years ago. And it's obviously a story for another time. It's a very long story, but uh, there's a lot of twists and turns to that. But the point is, I know like I'm in touch with two brothers, one of whom was adopted out and the other one was raised by my birth mother. And so we are all planning to go to Ireland. In fact, if it weren't for the virus pandemic, we would be in Ireland right now. What day oh, is it? Wow. Yeah. I used building the tree. I did no names and I could build the tree very easily. I got some initial names. I was able to take it way back to my our great great grandparents. I knew my biological grand my maternal grandmother came from was born in Scotland, but that the story went that she was um of Irish descent and that all of her parents or like her grandparents were born in Ireland. So I actually was able to work really hard to prove that actually three of those of her grandparents were born in Ireland. But one of them I think was born in Scotland. And I think he goes way, way back. But because of that, I was able to locate where those other, now we're at my great, great grandparents, right? Where they were born in Ireland. I actually found that through all the ancestry computer, amazing records, all this stuff like that. So we actually created an itinerary. I had, I usually travel very loosey-goosey. I'm very like, you know, I'm just going to show up. Like, I don't like massive itineraries. I I really can't stand it. But man, did I have a crazy itinerary planned. In fact, when we had, we rescheduled to October, I, I was like, well, let's take a little silver lining here. Why were we trying to do this in seven days? Let's make it 10. So we rescheduled it for 10 because it was nuts. But we found like, we're going to go through through villages and, and then there's a couple gray areas where we're not sure. So we then could look up the Irish names and see like McManus is from this certain, um, you know, county. So I had to punt on the McManus 
great-grandfather, because I think he was, I think they go back in Scotland too far, but originally it is an Irish name. So my point is you can do a lot with ancestry to plan your trip by being able to also build trees and maybe actually pinpointing where your ancestors were from. And then if not, you can use other resources to at least get a general estimate of where the area of the country that you want to hit. I hope you're going to take your microphone with you when you go on these trips, because this is a fascinating story you're telling. And we're almost out of time, but I would love to just dig, dig, dig. Your story sounds so fascinating. And Ancestry.com should probably support this podcast because you have just hopefully sold hundreds of people on using their services. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, I don't think I've ever heard of anybody using it to find their birth family, to track their ancestors to a specific town in Ireland and Scotland. I mean, you've really been able to do all that with this tool. That's incredible. And then actually plan your own trip to Ireland, that's incredible. That's really great. But I also like the, you know, your point that if you, you know, maybe do want more of an organized trip, you know, you could find like, yeah, I want to go to Ireland, but I've never been to Ireland. I, you know, yeah, my ancestors are from there, but I wouldn't know the first place to go. There are definitely tour companies. There are still things called travel agents, right? I mean, you can still find somebody to help you plan a trip. Am I right on that one? Yeah, I think there are travel agents. Sometimes I wonder about that. But anyway, there are lots of different organized tours and things that you can easily access and find online. It's pretty easy to do. So, and again, if you want to get into the miles and points game, I don't think I mentioned that I have 1.5 million uh, hotel points and airline miles right now. That's how many I have and not by spending a lot of extra money. So again, I want to stress if you can find ways to reduce the cost of the travel to the location itself, then you have a lot more money to spend on things like walking tours. And, you know, you could look online and find things in the area or maybe just splurge. Yeah. Do you like once you get the travel part covered, splurge on on an entire organized tour? I don't know. And aren't there, I mean, you know, as I said that, I'm like, I don't know if travel agents, maybe that's not what I'm talking about, but there are like Facebook groups and travel groups that plan these types of trips where, you know, you could probably plug into a group and find like ancestors in Ireland who want to plan a trip on Facebook. I mean, there are groups for everything. So even if there isn't a quote unquote tour guide, there are probably groups that can help you plan a trip to whatever the country you're thinking about. Yes, there's like there, I feel like there's a group, an online group, like Facebook group for everything. There's lots of travel groups on Facebook. Oh my gosh. And definitely if your angle is trying to save money for travel or if your angle is trying to, you know, travel with women or what, I mean, yeah. you know, just there's so many different aspects. African, you know, black people who travel, black women who travel. I mean, you right. can find anything you could think of. And then I would imagine that, yeah, there's, I'm sure I just haven't yet looked to see if there's like Irish descent people going to Ireland. You know, there has I'm, to be. Sh- there I'm has sure there is. I'm sure I'm there is. I'm going to find that and put it on the web, on the website. Okay. I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> and, um, and I should probably look at that now that I have more time to plan and I'm going to have a longer trip and then maybe I could add a few more cool things. <laughs> right. I mean, and that's the, th- and that is the beauty of trying to do DNA travel or heritage travel. It is a new trend and mark my words, somebody is going to try to market it to you and sell it to you in a little, in a nice tidy package. Um, we know that's already happening and that's fine because some people want that tidy package. They don't want to do the groundwork themselves. But if you don't want to wait, there are plenty of ways to kind of do it piecemeal, step by step, and find those types of resources online to help you out because there are plenty of resources. And I think the key thing is to keep in mind that it's not new. Heritage travel, DNA travel, it is not a new concept to go travel to where your ancestors come from. 
I think the thing is that there's just more tools now to make it easier. So I think you should just look at it as that way, as some a thing to take advantage of. All right, Lisette, I because again, you were already my best friend in my head, and I think <laughs> we could just keep on, keep on talking, keep yeah. on talking. But I just want to just ask you as a final thought to um, share with people: How do you think travel has like? I don't want to say changed you, but impacted your life. Like what has travel done for you as an individual? So many things. We've touched on it in respect. I think one of the biggest things is giving me perspective, stepping outside the country, finding more of a sense of myself. One thing when we talked about Brazil that I didn't specifically mention was the time that I went to a dance class in Salvador and I was instead of being the one or two, one of one or two or maybe three people of color in a dance class, suddenly there was one person who was white and like 30 of us who weren't. Um, so having a different experience and perspective, whether it's, oh, now I totally stand out. Now I don't stand out. Now I blend in. Now I fit in. All of those experiences help me gain perspective into my life at home. You gain insight into your own needs and what is important to you. And I also feel like, for me, I love adventure. I've always been an adventurous person. So it's like a refreshing reset or something. I go on an adventure and it clears me out. It's like whatever the routine and the grind and the this and the that, I need to pause and go do something completely different. And it infuses me with gratitude. It infuses me with a sense of wonder. It gets me back into being in the moment. And then when I go home, I try to remember I can bring that home with me. I don't have to be abroad necessarily to be in the moment, to have a sense of wonder, to pause and refresh. It's just that sometimes I, for me anyway, travel helps remind me that I can bring that mindset home. Does that make any sense? I don't no, know. It absolutely does. It absolutely does. Especially because I listened to your podcast and <laughs> I remember you having that conversation with somebody else. And it's so true. I remember hearing that idea that travel can actually make you remember how to feel impressed by just the flowers outside your own house. Your mindset that you take with you when you travel, you can actually bring that home and travel helps you do that, right? It reminds right. you that you can do that. Okay. Sorry. I do have one last question. So <laughs> okay. We're stuck because of the coronavirus, we can't travel. Right. What are you telling yourself that you'll be able to travel again soon? Like, how are you keeping your, like, you usually would probably be, like you said, you'd be in Ireland right now if it weren't for coronavirus right now. How are you keeping yourself thinking positively about what the world of travel will look like post-corona? I do feel fortunate in that I had happened to have gone on a real tear with travel right before this happened. In fact, my very last trip was in January on a cruise of all things. I never hardly ever go on cruises, but I was on a cruise to the Caribbean and it kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies to think about that now. Anyway, um, (laughs) with my 84 year old father with heart failure, like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, he's not going on any cruises. Dodged a bullet, but yeah, dodged a bullet for real. So I'm having a right now as a lot of sets of gratitude. I mean, like, I'm almost glad to be home because I was so traveling that I was so crazy everywhere that I needed a time home by happenstance. If it hadn't have been that way, I bet I'd be crawling out of my skin. But, you know, we did reschedule that trip early in this whole crisis and we decided on October. Now I'm wondering, gosh, I wonder if it'll even go out further than that, you know? So I do sometimes wonder like, when will we be able to travel again? You know, so if I start thinking about like that way, I start to go like, 
oh my gosh, like, could it be really long? So I try to keep out of that. I have a trip to Ireland planned in, in October. You know, I had other trips planned for my DNA travel. I was going to go to Italy, actually, in October and Albania. And then my plan was to go to Africa, which I've not been to Africa. To I was going to go to um, South Africa and Mozambique and then Senegal, actually, in January. And I don't know, I had happened to have not booked my travel. I had been being slow on it. And with miles and points, you got to plan ahead and book out really far. So I'm just operating under the assumption that I will be doing those trips, but that I just don't know when. But I'm keeping my hope alive, like I'm still planning that. And I don't think I had clearly said that, but I'm definitely all of my future upcoming travel is going to be DNA travel, based travel. Um, it's a project I'm doing now for myself and, in fact, may even be launching a new podcast around Yay. DNA travel. So I, I am keeping the hope alive and that that will happen. I just know that when exactly is to be seen, but hopefully that I can kick it off in October. Well, I do hope that that all of that travel happens and that we can come along with you in some way, shape or form. So can you tell everybody how we can keep up with you so we can, if you do a podcast about it, if you write about it on your blog, where can we find you in your adventures? Yeah. So the best place to find me is jetsetlizette.com and it's spelled with an S, not a Z, even though I'm saying it with a Z sound. So jetsetlizette.com and that really is where I am. You can find me at Jet Set Lizette on Instagram and on Facebook also. And my podcast is the Globe Trotter Lounge, as you mentioned before. But if you put in Lizette, I think if you even just put L-I-S-E-T-T-E in any podcast platform, there's not a lot of us Lizettes <laughs> podcasting. So you're going to find me, but you could put the Globe Trotter Lounge or whatever. But yeah, and I and if you, I am going to launch a new podcast. Um, but in the meantime, I have season three coming up. And in fact, I'm interviewing you soon, I believe. Um, oh. Season three coming up of the Globetrotter Lounge, and I will be launching that in May of 2020. Thank you so much. And I look forward to hearing your new show next season of Globetrotter Lounge. And I just thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. This has been a really great conversation. I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Oh my goodness. I could talk to Lisette Austin for hours about travel, about multiracial identity, about being a brown girl out and about in the world, about Brazil. There's so many things that we have in common. Plus, it's just she's done so much and seen so many places. And I just love her attitude about travel in general. Plus, you know, before doing the research for this show, I never really thought about DNA travel. But hearing Lisette describe it as heritage travel and breaking it down what it really is. I guess it's not really a new trend, but now that we do have these DNA test kits available, it is kind of intriguing to think about taking a trip back to my ancestors' homeland, especially if I could have a genealogist go with me. That would be pretty cool. So this conversation for me has definitely made me want to travel more. Clearly, I can't really plan on any kind of travel with certainty right now because of the pandemic, but I can certainly dream. And that's exactly what I'm going to do until the world turns itself right again. Are you still thinking about travel, Melting Pot community? I'd love to hear your plans. You can leave me a message on the blog or hit me up on social media. Hey, if we can't actually travel, there's no law that says we still can't dream and plan.
Thank you for listening, Melting Pot community. If you enjoyed today's episode and found it valuable in any way, please, please, please take a moment to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Those ratings and reviews really do help other people find the show. And it helps me to know and remember that there are actual real human beings listening to and loving the programming. And now that we're in the middle of a global pandemic, you can also think about sharing this podcast not only as a favor to me, but to those folks who are desperately looking for more content to consume that will both inform and inspire. And speaking of content, just a reminder, Melting Pot community, that My American Melting Pot is coming out every week this season. So you can expect a new episode every Friday through June 19th. If you still want even more Melting Pot content, don't forget I post on the blog every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and daily on the My American Melting Pot social accounts. Just visit MyAmericanMeltingPot.com for links to all the goodness. The My American Melting Pot podcast is usually recorded at WRTI Studios in Philadelphia, and we have a wonderful crew from WRTI that works with us. But during the corona crisis, this show is coming to you straight from my basement. The show is produced by me, Lori Diversity Diva Tharps. Our editor and technical director is Brad Linder, and our theme music was composed by Sumi Tanoka. Thank you for listening, and remember to always live your life in color. And please, during these really scary times, take care of yourselves, Melting Pot community, and be well.